I want to tell you a story about the summer of 2008. In the summer of 2008, uh, Terry Hancock, who's a very good friend of mine, uh, like a mother to me, and, and some of you might struggle with the fact that, of the story that I'm getting ready to share. This isn't, I'm not trying to convince you that women in ministry is what you need to be okay with. I'm okay with it. You don't have to be okay with it. But Terry's a, a woman in ministry. She's a pastor of a church, and she's like a mother to me. And we were doing an outreach together in Hopkinsville, Kentucky, to the projects, to the housing projects there. And you think about a little town like Hopkinsville, Kentucky, you probably think, well, there's not that many projects there, but trust me, there are. And we were doing this outreach this, this, to the projects, and it was going well, and we were having, I don't know, um, we were probably having 50, 60, 70 maybe people in the tent each night, and then people were coming out in the projects out on their porch, and we had a sound system where we're blasting it out over the projects. People were coming out on their porch and listening to the preaching and all these things. And we had led some people to the Lord. It's a very exciting time. And, and I love doing stuff like that. And people say that stuff doesn't work anymore. It does work. You just have to try it. You know, the, it doesn't work because we don't do it. Street preaching, as of my ministry starting 11 years ago, street preaching still works. I've led hundreds of people to the Lord on the street. Okay. You can't be a jerk about it, <laughs> you know, you gotta, you know, but anyway, so we're doing this outreach to the projects and Terry, you guys think I holler. I don't think Terry can talk at all while she's preaching. It's pretty much screaming for 45 minutes. You know, that's what happens in the South though. We scream, you know, but, uh, so Terry, she's preaching and she's fired up and she's preaching this message this night and The message that night inside the tent, what was mostly inside the tent, was believers who had come together to reach out to the projects. Very few that evening of of non-believers. The message that Terry had laid, that God had laid on Terry's heart, was a message aimed at believers about reaching out, about our lifestyle and those things. And the people in the tent were amening, and they were excited. They were like, yeah, preach it to them, sister. Kind of like they were pointing fingers. Yeah, you preach it. Jim needs to know that. (laughs) Right? And going through all of this, and Terry is preaching her heart out, and it's a good message, and Terry's a great preacher. and So she's preaching all this, and finally she just pulls up short, Pulls her glasses off and goes, I don't know what you're amening about. I'm talking to you. You're amening and you're talking and you're pointing your finger at everybody else and saying that everybody else needs to get right with this. But I'm talking to you. The ones who are here in the tent tonight. This is about us. This is about the changes that we need to have in our life. They were encouraging, even egging Terry on to to preach the message, sister, tell them. But they were failing to apply it to themselves. I asked via the Oil City Community Alliance Facebook page this last week a question to get people thinking. If you read the Word of God or you hear a good sermon, how many times do you think, oh, so-and-so needs to hear this? 
Oh, I need to share this link because this person in my life needs to hear it. And yet we fail to apply it to ourselves first. I got to admit to you, sometimes I'm guilty. Sometimes I'm guilty of that. This last week, I preached a message on valuing people for their contributions. And they did something that didn't show somebody I valued them. Talk about feeling like a heel. Right? Because you preach a message and then, and then the own message you don't even apply to your own heart. Or, and, and I'm not saying I intentionally tried to hurt, but you know, it's one of those things where we have to hold this up and, and, and realize these messages are, are for us. When I preach a sermon up here and give a sermon, it's for me first. And then it's for you. When you hear it, it's for you first. And then it's for your husband or your wife or your kids. Or your neighbor. I think throughout the history of the world, people, uh, the people of God have been known to do this more than just nowadays. I think that we've been known to do this. And we need to ask the question when we're hearing these messages, who, me? This is for me? This is a problem all throughout the history of the world. Israel fell prey to this problem all the time. Hearing the message and assuming the message was for someone else. Church, we hear the message of revelation and assume it's for someone else. We've got a whole book of the Bible that a lot of Christians believe is not for us. It's for those who get left behind. And, and And you can believe that and it's okay and you can still end up in heaven. But I want to read you a little bit of the, the address in the very beginning of Revelation chapter 1. And this is not what our scripture is today. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. And skip down to verse 3. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and keep what is written in them, for the time is near. Revelation fourteen twelve, I posted two weeks ago. What does this mean? Here's a call for the saints to endure. Now, I'm not here to debate whether it's a pre-trib, post-trib, or mid-trib rapture. Don't care what you believe. You don't have to believe any of those. You can be pan-trib. We don't care. Pan-trib is all going to pan out in the end. All right? We don't care. Okay? But the point is, is the book of Revelation is one of, it's like this big picture of we don't apply it to us first. We assume it's for someone else. That's not for me. Israel did this too. Israel did this too, and the writer of Hebrews, the author of this book that we're studying together, addresses this phenomenon 
in Hebrews chapter 3, verses 16 through chapter 4, verse 2. And he's really been addressing it all the way through chapter 3, but he really draws some significant attention to it at the end of chapter 3 and the beginning of chapter 2. So let's read that together, starting in verse 16. Now I'm reading from the English Standard Version. You may be reading out of a different translation. That's okay. We're going to actually talk a little bit about translations later in the sermon. So here's what it says, starting in verse 16. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest? But to those who were disobedient. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. I'd like to add some emphasis to that, my emphasis, to those who actually listened. You can hear and not listen. There's a difference. Let's pray. Father, you say some challenging things through the author of Hebrews. And today is no exception to that rule. You call us to listen to the message, to internalize it. To hold it up in our own lives and say, how am I measuring up to this? Lord, these frequent reminders to do that are needed. Because we confess to you today that sometimes we apply it to everybody else instead of ourselves. We ask you today to help us to remember this. May this be a transforming message for the rest of our life. That when we listen to preaching, that when we read your Bible, that when we study devotionals and we have time with you, that we will apply your word to our lives first before we apply it to everyone else. And we ask it in Jesus' name. And God's people said, Amen. So there's a bit of a rhetorical question here at the beginning of this passage. The writer of Hebrews... Ask this rhetorical question, to whom was God talking when he said these things? Now, I know that's not exactly how the writer phrased it, but to whom was God talking when he said these things? Now, he answers his own question, but he goes in pretty, pretty good detail about it. He was talking to the nation of Israel. He said there in the beginning of what we're looking at today, wasn't it the people who came out of the land of Egypt by Moses? And by the way, how did they get out of the land of Egypt by Moses? Somebody yell it out. Before that, 10th plague, the Passover, the ones who were redeemed by the blood, the ones the angel of death did not take because they had the faith to put the blood of the lamb on their lintel and their doorposts. The children of God. The foreshadowing of communion that we just took today. 
the people who were called his people. To whom did he say these things? To whom did he, did, did he say these things? And he says, to the ones who sinned in the wilderness and who fell and couldn't enter into his rest. People who were redeemed. There was an entire generation, save Caleb and Joshua, who could not come over into the promised land because they were not willing to hear. God said, go in, take it. Twelve spies went over. Ten came back and said, chickens, the people are big. They're going to eat us. I know that's not exactly what they said, but they were afraid. God had told them, I'll be with you. I'll give it into your hand. They failed to listen to that. They heard it. They failed to internalize it. And they paid the consequence for it. Now, I know we're like, well, but we don't pay consequences. We're New Testament believers. You know what I'm getting ready to say. Yeah. (laughs) Which is the technical word for poppycock. Which, by the way, I got three cans of for Christmas because I say that. If if you've never had poppycock, it's pretty good. Orville Redenbacher makes it. This sermon brought to you by Orville. No, just kidding. (laughs) But, you know, because we just read there in chapter 4, Fear. Fear. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest stands, still stands, let us fear. Where is the fear of God today? In the people of God. I don't care about our nation. I mean, I do, but let's not apply it to our government officials first. Let's stop applying it to the senators and the presidents and the congressmen. Let's stop applying it to our judges, our Supreme Court justices. Let's stop applying it to the police. Let's stop applying it to the governors first. Let's apply it to us first, and then we can tell them about it. I'm not saying we don't need to tell them about it. We do. After we fear, after we say, does my life line up with this? DC Talk says it this way in their Jesus Freak album on one of the songs called What If I Stumble, What If I Fall. The beginning of the song says this. The single biggest cause of atheism in the world today is people who acknowledge Jesus Christ with their lips and then walk out the door and deny Him by their lifestyle. This is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. Church, we have to apply these things to our lives first. Israel missed this fact over and over and over again in the Old Testament times. The message was always for the godless nations. This was so clear inside of Israel that the Torah, the the oral, not excuse me, not the Torah, the oral law, the oral tradition, which they eventually wrote down in two books called the Mishnah and the Gemara. 
So we call it the Talmud is the oral tradition. You don't have to remember that. Just remember their, their laws. When you got to the physical borders of the nation of Israel, if you were a Jew, you were to clean the dust off of your feet from that unsanctified, godless, heathen nation before you stepped onto the holy ground of Israel. Jesus actually makes reference to this when he says to go around two by two and to preach, and if they don't receive you, shake off the dust as a testimony against them. But he was telling them to go to the Jews, to God's chosen people, because they had failed to apply the message first. Hey, I get it. I know that it says in the Scripture, what fellowship has darkness with light? You can't be at Belial's table and God's table. And that's more than marriage. Okay? We, all, we like to apply that. Can't, can't have a believer and an unbeliever get married. You can't. That's, that's correct. But that's also in a lot of other areas too. Go read that passage. It's not about marriage. It's about being unequally yoked. And we can be unequally yoked in more ways than just marriage. But guys, the message has to apply to us first. I've got to look at me. I want everybody to make a pointer finger like this. Like this. And I want you to point at somebody. I'm pointing at Kelly. Just point at somebody. So I got one finger pointing at Kelly. I have three fingers pointing back at me. Look at that. So do you. When you're pointing at somebody, you got three fingers pointed back at you. Your middle finger, your ring finger, and your pinky finger. Remember that. Remember that. Okay, you don't like it that way? Let's remember it this way. You know the old-timey saying? You got two ears and one mouth? It's because you got need to hear more than you say? You got to hear it first, apply it to you first, listen and put it in your life first, and then say it to other people? I think you get the point. I could go on, but I won't. Church, the the church today thinks that God's message of repentance is for those outside the church, but we fail to recognize that he's talking first to us, a royal priesthood, a chosen people, a holy nation. And not America, the holy nation, the church, the holy nation. Okay? He's talking to us first. This interpretation is supported by the fact that we are warned that we should not be like Israel in this regard. I know I may be, you're going, I don't, some of you may be saying, I don't know if he's really saying that. Guys, this is a warning to not be like Israel. He asked the rhetorical questions. And then he answers, he says, see what they, see that they were unable to enter because of their unbelief. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us, let, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them. But the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. Now I could go on in chapter three and, and really bear this out to you and show you this. Because he establishes, the author of Hebrews establishes that entering his rest is not being born again. It's getting to heaven. 
It's running the race with endurance until the very end. Go read the rest of Hebrews chapter 3 this week if you don't believe that. You have not entered his rest just because you got saved. And the author of Hebrews is clearly making that point in this passage. Do you have peace with God? Yes. Are you born again? Yes. Do you have a promise of a future and a hope? Yes. Does that mean you can sit back and not apply God's word to your life? No. Does that mean that you can do anything you want to? No. Does that mean that you need to look at somebody else and tell them what's wrong with them first before you deal with your own sin? No. And we need to reconcile this in our minds that this isn't free regard or this isn't this doesn't free us to to disregard the message. And I think as we look at at this and we contemplate this, we need to ask some serious questions like why how is it that we miss the message? How we miss it? You know, what, what do we do? Why are we missing it? Because sometimes we're missing it. And I think if we see how we're missing it, we'll quit missing. Let me talk about one of my favorite things real quick. To, get, to illustrate the point before I go on. When the pirates are up at batting practice and they're not able to hit the ball, the batting coach starts explaining to them what they're doing in order to miss it so that they can correct it. Okay? Do you understand? They, they look at, okay, why am I missing? Oh, I'm missing the ball because I'm not snapping my wrist. I'm missing the ball because, you know, I'm, I'm swinging underneath of it. They, why am I missing it? So I think we need to be honest with ourselves this morning and look at some of the reasons we miss it so that hopefully we'll quit missing it. Amen? One of the first reasons I believe that we miss it is that we fail to be honest with ourselves about sin. We fail to be honest with ourselves about the sin that's going on in our life. When confronted... We make excuses. We justify. We use the grace of God as an occasion for the flesh. And we, we refuse to be honest about this. We refuse to be honest as men sometimes. That treating our wives like, like slaves, yelling at them, belittling them, is sin. We declare, well, I'm the head of the household. And we fail to recognize that in the New Testament, it says that we, to, that we as husbands and wives are to submit to one another. A husband, you are to love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave his life for her. By the way... If you love her like that, I promise you she'll submit. You treat her like that, men. You want to know how to, you want to, know how to get your wife to follow your lead? Lay down your life for her. Put her first in front of you. Not first in front of Jesus, but put her first in front of you. She'll submit. She'll follow you. Now I'm going to prove it. Ladies, if your husband loved you the way that Christ loved the church and treated you like a princess or a queen, 
Raise your hand if you'd submit to him. Look, guys. Your wife's hand's up. Your wife's hand went up. I've preached that message like five or six times over the course of 12 years. You know? But we fail to acknowledge our sin. We fail to acknowledge our sin. The next one. Can you advance that, please? We compare ourselves to others instead of God. We compare ourselves to others instead of God. I'm going to give you an easy example of comparing ourselves to others instead of God. Well, at least I'm not as bad as Osama bin Laden. The standard is not Osama bin Laden. The standard is not being better than Hitler. The standard is not being better than somebody else that's a leader in the world that you don't like. The standard is God's holy perfection. Jesus is the standard. Perfect, sinless obedience. That's the standard. And when we compare ourselves to others instead of God, of course we're going to look good. Man, I look good next to Osama bin Laden. I haven't killed thousands and thousands of people. I haven't led a world terror organization. Right? I look good next to him. But the scripture tells me that my righteousness is as filthy rags before the Lord. You think God knows that we compare ourselves to others instead of him? I think he does. That's why he puts it in there. Your righteousness is as filthy rags before the Lord. We've got to stop comparing ourselves to others. We've got to stop saying, well, I'm better than Osama bin Laden. Or, well, our church is better than that church. Or, well, I'm better than that guy at church. There's no human being that's the standard except for Jesus Christ, the Holy One of God, the one who is free of sin, was made a sin offering so that we might be called the righteousness of God. He is the standard. And we are so bad about comparing ourselves to others. But that's not what the Word says to do anywhere. And point, uh, the next one, you know, we go on sinning believing there will be time to, uh, later to repent. Like, I know what I'm doing is wrong. And God's convicted me of it, and I've heard His Spirit speak to me, and I'm like, well, Lord, I'm just going to do this one more time, and later I'll repent. Be honest with yourself today. There's not a person inside this room. There's no way there's a person inside this room that this has never happened to. I'm not saying it happens every time with everything you're convicted of. But man, I've been convicted of stuff and said, I'll repent later. I'm in the middle of it. I'll repent later. And I know I'm not alone. 
But you don't have to be honest with me. Be honest with God. This is something that happens regularly. When God convicts us of sin, though, do you know when we're supposed to stop? Right then and there. Do you know when we're supposed to repent? Right then and there. Do you know if we sin against somebody else and we're in the middle of sinning against somebody else? Do you know when we're supposed to apologize and ask for forgiveness? Right then and there. I mean, the Scripture says... We like to talk about Matthew 18, 15 through 20, and I love that, okay? That's like biblical conflict resolution. You know, if, you, if your brother sinned against you, go talk to him in private, then take two or three witnesses, not to watch you talk to him, two or three people who also have firsthand knowledge of the sin. But anyways, that's a sermon for another day. There's another one, though, that says, if you're going to the altar to worship and you know your brother has something against you, leave your gift at the altar, go make it right, and then come. Like, if you know, like, if I know I offended Matt and God's convicted me of that, I need to fix that right there. I don't even need to worship God. Like, singing praise songs to him or or bringing an offering, I need to go get it right with Matt. Worship God in that way. Who says there's time to repent? Life is fragile, friends. In 1989, I was hit by a Chevy Monte Carlo and drug 163 feet underneath of it. I died three times in the ambulance on the way to the hospital. I was coming back from staying the night at a friend's house. I did not plan on getting ran over that day. And that was nearly it for me. I promise you Christy McCandless was not trying to wreck this morning on the way to church. But she got in a wreck. Praise God, she's fine. But it could have been over. We are here one minute and gone the next. We need to take Stephen Curtis Chapman's advice. I'm living the next five minutes like they're my last five minutes so that when I get to the next five minutes, I can start all over again. I think he gets that advice from James where it says we shouldn't be saying, well, tomorrow we're going to go here and do such and such, but we're going to say if it's the Lord's will because it's immediate with us right here, right now. What's going on right here, right now? I need to get it right because there may not be time later to repent. That's why the scripture tells us, don't let the sun go down on your angry, on your anger, on your angry. Apparently I need grammar lessons. Now, interestingly enough, before that, it says, be angry and do not sin. You know, it's not sin to get angry. It's sin to stay angry. Be angry and do not sin. Sometimes anger is going to happen. Boom. Okay, be angry. Don't sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Get it right. Because you may not have tomorrow. You may not have the next day. I think there's some other ways we miss it. Another way that we miss it is we place false levels on sin. I.e., some sins are worse than others.
Now, right now in Christianity, it's very popular to talk about all sin is equal. But what we're doing in a lot of Christian circles is saying, therefore, leave everybody alone with their sin. No. Like there's an article here that says, oh, we're all biblical literists until it comes to gluttony. And the article makes some pretty good points. But, but like in the end, it's kind of like, just, so just let everybody alone. No. No, we don't just let everybody alone. Okay? But you need to understand that person's sin who repulses you, their sin repulses you, not the person, their sin repulses you. Your sin is just as repulsive to God. We have a hard time grasping that. That's why we compare ourselves to others. But there are no levels of sin. James says this in chapter 2 of James. I believe it's verse 10. I could be wrong. He says that if we keep the entire law yet stumble at just one point, we're guilty of breaking it all. All I had to do is not honor Sarah and love her like like Christ loved the church one time. And I'm guilty of breaking the entire law. I'm in the same boat as Osama bin Laden. I'm in the same boat as a person who's given their life over to homosexuality. I'm in the same boat as a person who has given their, who has given their support to abortion. I'm in the same boat as those people. I'm not better than them. There's no levels of sin. There's no scriptural report, support for the levels of sin. This all goes back to the comparison to other people instead of God's holy standard, but, but you get my point. But the biggest one, in my opinion, is the next one. We call our sin righteousness because we worship a false God that only exists in our minds. My God that I worship, He likes the things I like. He hates the things I hate. Right? We talked about it in men's training ground a little bit this morning. Well, my God, well, you're right, your God wouldn't do that because he doesn't exist. He's a figment of your imagination. He's an idol in your mind. You're guilty of idolatry. You've created a false God. Well, my God wouldn't send people to hell. Yes, he will. Yes, he will. He doesn't want to. But, oh, he will. He will discipline you. He will send you to hell. Well, my God wouldn't let a murderer in heaven. I'm going to hold my anger and bitterness and resentment towards that person because they're a murderer and they've taken somebody from me that I love. Hey, so are you. It says if you're, if you're angry with your brother without cause, if you say to somebody, you fool, Araka, if you talk to him negatively, if, you, if you're critical, if you're angry at him, you're guilty of murder already in your heart. And you're expecting him to let you in heaven. So this God that wouldn't let him in, he doesn't exist. He's an idol in your mind. I have found out as I've read the Word of God that my God 
likes a bunch of things I don't like. And he hates a bunch of things I do like. That's what I discovered. I don't know what Bible you're reading. The one I'm reading, I'm like, oh, dang. He's calling me out again. He won't leave me alone. He's on my back. Convicted me of my sin. He doesn't think I'm nearly as as nifty as I think I am. I have misconceptions about who he is. He is totally understanding of who I am. I mean, we do this. And and we disguise it and we justify it. I want to give some examples of this. Because I think this is the biggest one. Okay? We're going to go from easy to harder. So the first one should be pretty easy to see. Boy, I could be getting ready to put my foot in my mouth if there's somebody here that feels this way. I don't think there is, so I think it's an easy one to see. Well, the King James Version is the only authorized version of the Bible, and anyone who uses another translation is committing grievous sin. Therefore, we get to call these people heretics, heretics, and scoundrels. Not heretics, heretics. I need to pronunciation class. And we get to gossip about them and slander them and call it righteousness. Do you know that gossip and slander causes more church problems than murderers or homosexuals? Like that's like, you know, they talk about the socially acceptable sin. I saw an article about the socially acceptable sins, gluttony. You know what the really, you know what the culturally acceptable sin inside the church is? Gossip. Next week, we're going to receive new members into the church. And we're going to charge them. If somebody's talking bad about somebody else, it's your responsibility to look at them and say, Stop it, Dan. You don't talk about your brother that way. You go talk to him. But we get to talk about those KJV only guys. Well, they're heretics. Jesus, and now, they're... We can say they're wrong lovingly, okay? Jesus didn't speak Old English. And there's nothing wrong with the King James Version of the Bible. Jesus spoke Greek and Aramaic, okay? But we don't get to just go run them into the ground. We don't just get to go trash them. Casting Crown sings a song about this. Talks about what this world needs is not a, another one hit wonder with an axe to grind. And anyways, it goes on through the song. At one point, he says, he does this talking part and he says that God doesn't need him or his translation of the Bible to get the job done. That one's easy to see. I think that's easy to see, anyways. Because I don't think anybody hears the KJV only. Um, nobody's come up to me and complained about the ESV yet. So let's go a little harder. Where we have this false God. We're passionate about some ministry. We're passionate about some ministry. And rightly so because God has given us a passion for it. Okay? 
So like we are passionate and we are fired up about it. And we start harboring bitterness and anger towards anybody else who's not passionate about it. Well, how could they not be passionate about this? They're sinning because they're not into this. Now listen, I love street witnessing. I used to go down to Nashville and preach on the streets. After a University of South Carolina and Vanderbilt football game, I had a crowd of about 250 people gather around me. I took the defensive end from uh, the University of South Carolina, gave them the good person test, gave away 20 bucks to do it. Ten-minute sermon, presented the gospel, had the kid laughing. I was laughing, but we called sin, sin. We called righteousness, righteousness. And it was a great time. The chaplain of the team came up to me and said, Man, I've been trying for three years or two years to witness to these guys, hadn't figured out how to open the door. Man, you kicked the door open for me today. Thank you. I'm sure the bus ride home is going to be full of conversations. The group of guys that I would go down with were from all different churches. And they would talk about what losers other people were because they wouldn't use the way of the master. I love the way of the master. Okay? I love using the law of God for what it's for as a means to show us our unrighteousness. But if you're not passionate about the way of the master or you're not passionate about street evangelism, I don't get to run you down because some are called to be evangelists and some are not. So insert your ministry here. Whatever your ministry is, everybody's going to not be passionate about it like you are. So what? It doesn't mean they're a sinner. It doesn't mean that they're just worthless and useless for the kingdom of God. Like Polly and I talk a lot, if, if you get married and the person's just like you, one of you's not necessary. Right? If, there's, you know, if I marry somebody just like me, then one of us isn't necessary to that relationship. One of us is not adding anything of value. We're different people. Some are the finger. We talked about this last week. Some are the hand. Some are the foot. Some are the mouth. And we have to embrace that diversity. But it's a little harder to see that one because God's impassioned you. God has given you a call in your life to do something for Him. And you're like, well, how could everybody else not be passionate about this? And you've forgotten that God is passionate about a lot of things, not just the thing He gave you. And so you've made this false God who only likes what you like and you criticize everybody else's ministry. These guys would do away the master. They would do that. They would criticize these people. I quit doing street evangelism with my friends that I was doing away the master for because we started turning the church off. I didn't quit doing the way of the master. I just quit doing it on the street with those guys because... We're running everybody else down. I'm like, guys, this is sin. We have taken something that God has given us as a passion and turned it into sin. Because everybody's not into it. Everybody's not supposed to be into it. And I had to check myself and back up. There are going to be people inside the church who are into hospitality. Or administration. Or whatever. And they get giddy about it. I don't have to get it and understand it. Set to let them minister where God's called them to. So that's a little harder. Again, story from my life where we did it with way of the master. Here's, a little, here's, the, here's the most difficult one I could come up with for this sermon that was still simple enough to explain. 
someone hurts us. And we know that God would never do that. And so this empowers us to lash out at them in the, in the guise of, and I hate this word and I hear Christians use it all the time, well, it's righteous indignation. No, it's not righteous. They hurt you. They're wrong. That doesn't mean you get to lash back. Jesus says if your brother strikes you on the cheek, give him the other one also. I know, we don't like to hear that. Right? I know we, 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 that doesn't sit well with us. But it's so easy for us to justify and say, well, God wouldn't, God wouldn't want me to be their doormat, and I'm not going to be. And then we go so far. This, is, this happened in the last three years to Sarah and I. A believer said, God has given me a mission to destroy Jerry Breedlove's ministry permanently. To make sure that he never preaches again. To make sure he never pastors a congregation again. Because God hates him as much as I do. By the way, I love that person. I'm sharing the story with you because I want you to see that this stuff is true. We do it. And we call it righteousness. Our God wouldn't wouldn't let this happen. So this is righteous in me. This person had righteous indignation towards me that wasn't righteous. This person, by the way, was one of my wife and I's best friends. I'm not sharing that with you because I want you to feel sorry for me. I'm not sharing that for you because I want you to be mad at that person if you ever met them. I'm sharing that as an example of where we, where we say what I'm doing is okay. And we ignore just big passages of Scripture that tell us to bear with one another, to love one another. Hence the whole, got to extend blood to my brother and my sister this morning during communion. Like we've got to love one another, be bound together with one another, with love. We sang at the end of prayer meeting this morning at at 9.15, bind us together, Lord, bind us together with cords that cannot be broken. Bind us together, Lord, bind us together. Bind us together in love. The part we didn't sing, there is only one God, there is only one King, there is only one Lord, that is why I sing. One God, one baptism, one fellowship, one faith. Sorry, Bonnie, I was going so fast. You've got to understand this. You've got to get this. We've got to apply the message to ourself first. Because when we don't, we are a terror to everyone else. Because we're walking in sin and calling it righteousness. Literally grieved me this last week when I found out that I had done exactly what I preached not to do. When I found out that I had made somebody not feel valuable 
grieved me. So I'm not up here telling you I'm better than you and that I never do it. I do. I'm preaching it first to me. Let it sink into your heart. But I don't want you to trust me. That's why we've got homework. We're going to sharpen ourselves with the Word of God. Monday, Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 to 5. Tuesday, Luke 6, 37 to 42. Wednesday, Luke 6, 43 through 49. Thursday, James 1, 19 to 25. Friday, James 2, 14 to 20. And Saturday, Luke 11, 27 to 28. We have homework for a couple of reasons. Number one. Sometimes people don't know where to start reading in their Bible. They want to read, but they don't have a plan. So we're offering a plan. Number two, I never want you to believe my sermons just because I say it from the pulpit. You need to hold it up next to the Word of God and see if the Word of God bears it out. Make sure I'm a biblical preacher by looking at it next to God's Word. I think you'll see this week a couple of these passages of the different places where it says get the speck out of your, or the log out of your own eye before you get the speck out of your brothers. All of these passages are about us applying the word to our own life first. Let's pray. Father, you've challenged us today. Lord, you've challenged me in the last week. Lord, we confess to you that it grieves us as we consider it, but that we have sinned, been guilty of the very things we've told others not to do. It grieves our spirits, Lord. And we ask you to help us to apply your word first to our lives before we apply it to others. And we ask it all in Jesus' name. And God's people said, Amen. Amen.